This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Have you ever made that joke about having an inside voice and an outside voice? You know, the things that you think versus the things that you actually say out loud. Well, that kind of separation is something that is studied by scientists and researchers about how we have two of ourselves and, and consciousness. And there's actually work being done that might help those two selves become one. Now, does that make sense? Well, our next guest, I think, can undoubtedly explain this much better. Saga Briggs is with us now, freelance journalist and author of The Science of Interception and Healing Through Connection to Yourself and Others. Saga, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Simi. I'm so happy to be here. Now, can you explain this to us? Like when you talk about merging those two selves, what are we talking about? Yeah, so I think most of the time we think of the self as just one single entity, um, but there's actually, researchers are sort of discovering there's there's actually two different forms of the self, the minimal self and the narrative self. And the narrative self is sort of the story that we tell ourselves every day. You know, this is who I am. um, This is how I feel. The minimal self is more... Um, the sense of your body from within. So when you're waking up in the morning, kind of in that that space between dream and waking reality, when you you just feel like you're in a body, um, that's more the minimal self. Um, And researchers are finding that these two different forms of the self actually relate to mental illnesses in different ways. Really? How? So this is still pretty early research. But um, anorexia, for example, is considered by some to be uh, a disorder of the narrative self because um, you're sort of uh, these like higher beliefs about uh, your perception of your body image are kind of overriding the sensory input that you get from your body. Um, And so those beliefs become very strong to the point where you might say, you know, I'm not thin enough, but your body is telling you otherwise. And depression is considered the opposite, like disorder of the minimal self, um, where you're sort of, maybe you have this sense of hyper embodiment, you're kind of slouched shoulders and you're, and you're very much um, almost too connected to your body and need a little bit more kind of um, sensory input, like a surprising uh, sensory input. Right. So I can see what you're saying when it comes to something like, say, body dysmorphia, right? Where you believe something on the inside that is different from the outside. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So this is like really a new frontier, right, Sega? Exactly. Yeah. This is is all quite new. Um, And I think a lot of research still needs to be done. But... At the same time, there's this really interesting field called interoception, which is um, the sense of the body from within, and researchers are starting to 
really understand the connection between brain and body more um, and how that relates to different disorders. So that's a really exciting um, new field of research. So yeah, what kind of difference can this research make? Like what could it lead to, like medications to help this? Yeah, um, I think also just on a, a very practical level, there's a lot of crossover with mindfulness meditation practice. So different ways, different techniques um, in terms of getting in touch with your body and improving interoceptive awareness can have really similar uh, benefits compared to mindfulness practices um, where you're either actually you're either able to tune into your bodily sensations more or have a different relationship with them, which um, can relieve a number of different conditions for people. So anxiety, depression, PTSD, OCD, really any mental illness you can name under the sun. There's uh, there's promise here for improving interoception. Right. So what it, what it comes down to then, Saga, it sounds like is it's your it's like when you're arguing against your own brain, right? Your brain's automatically telling you one thing, but you are overriding that. Right. Or even even your body, if you want to put it colloquially, um, uh, I think a lot of people are maybe a bit tuned out, not really paying attention to what's happening inside their body. And this whole field is kind of pushing us in this you know, funny enough in this contemplative wisdom direction where listening to your body, trusting your body really does have real um, wellness benefits. So is this where kind of the new study of perhaps using psychedelics comes in? Yeah, yeah. So psychedelics um, can impact both of these types of self. So we, we hear a lot in psychedelic science about dissolving the ego um, and kind of shutting down this part of the brain called the default mode network, which is sort of the story you tell yourself. But it can also, psychedelics can also impact uh, the minimal self and just this sense of, you know, how your bodily signals come together and are integrated to create the sense of you being in your body, what that feels like when you wake up every day. Um, and the interaction between these, these two things, um, yeah, is, is modulated by psychedelics. So there's some really, yeah, amazing promise, um, I think, that psychedelics hold in kind of influencing the way we feel in our bodies and therefore uh, the story we tell ourselves and, our, and the thoughts that we have, the beliefs that we have about ourselves. Well, Saga, your work must be so fascinating right now, kind of looking into this and talking to people and researching it. It does sound like it's kind of the... You're on the threshold, or research is on the threshold of something really quite substantial, doesn't it? It's really exciting, yeah. Um, and it's very interdisciplinary. You know, I'm talking to research, researchers in neuroscience and developmental psychology um, and, you know, psychedelic clinicians, therapists. And it's, yeah, it feels like kind of different disciplines are coming together in service of this this really interesting new direction. So yeah, it's very fulfilling. I like it. Well, thank you so much for explaining it to us this morning. 
Thanks so much, Simi. That's Saga Briggs. Saga's a freelance journalist who's been writing about this issue, also the author of The Science of Interoception and Healing Through Connection to Yourself and Others. We're talking about the merging of consciousness, where you, you think that, okay, well, what does that actually mean? But when you break it down, like Saga just did for us, we can see that what it means is perhaps a potential breakthrough when it comes to treating different types of, of mental illness, including uh, types of depression. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, I have a little question for our Scott Shantz this morning. Scott. Hi. For all the imaginary money, what movie soundtrack is that song from? I don't know. Oh, Scott. I, I would be guessing. I would be guessing. Go for it. Uh, You're the guy. You Dirty Dancing. In- you worked in FM. You're the music guy. You're the guy who always so, likes to tell so, me how. Footloose. Footloose. First of all, the only reason you know that is because our producer, Greg Schott, was pointing to his foot. That's the only reason you got that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but, Cheating. Uh, th- does that seem like a movie that I've watched over and over and over? You only have to watch it once to know what a great soundtrack it is, Scott. Okay. I'm not going to argue that it's a I great will, soundtrack. I've only seen the movie once, but I will tell you I had that soundtrack and I played it a lot okay. back in the day. Okay. This is a great song from that soundtrack. Okay. Did you have the soundtrack from Rad? Do you remember the movie Rad, the I DMX do. movie? <laughs> that is the greatest movie soundtrack of the 80s, I for did not sure. have that one, but I also had Dirty Dancing. I was okay. a big fan of movie soundtracks. And how about The Bodyguard? That was groundbreaking. In Great. My, it, but that was it, 1992. Like, yeah, but... Footloose was 1984, so okay. big difference. Yeah, yeah. Big difference. Debut of Kevin Bacon. Anyway, I digress. I just love that song. Let's talk about what's been going on in the news this weekend. And we're going to talk about hockey because hockey season is kicking off. Canucks fans remain ever hopeful, yeah. but there are some signs that some things about hockey just don't change. Well, I know you I mean you mentioned the Canucks and as much as we love to like lament our struggles here, it's not when you put things in perspective, it could be worse. It could be worse. It could always be worse. It's totally. The big news over the weekend is that the Columbus Blue Jackets head coach, Mike Babcock, has resigned. And we'll get into that in just a sec. Why? But the reason that everybody... So Mike Babcock is one of the winningest coaches of all time. Up until recently, some might have even called him like one of the greatest, if not the greatest coach. He uh, coached Detroit through a massively successful period, won a Stanley Cup. Uh, won he was, several, I might say. Uh, okay. Uh, I, I'm seeing one. 14 appearances, one cup in his professional record. 
that anyway, can't be I'll, right. dub- I'll double check that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I thought that was weird too. I, th- I thought it was more than that as well. I'll be honest. Uh, he won the Olympic medal in 2010 when the Olympics were here in Canada, won the gold medal, golden goal, Sidney Crosby. Mike Babcock was the coach. Toronto Maple Leafs paid him $50 million to come and try to coach their team. And some say if he had figured out how to do that and won a cup with them, he would be the greatest coach of all time. But the reason that he got let go from Toronto and went to Columbus is because of all sorts of talk about how bad his personality is, that he uh, is uh, like a bully and uh, uses these like old school aggressive tactics. Uh, One player, Johan Franzen um, from Detroit, said that he is a great coach, but he's also the worst person that he's ever, ever met. Ouch. So after leaving Toronto, it was like Mike Babcock will never coach again. Columbus, which is kind of a struggling team, said, no, no, we're going to take a chance on him. This is going to be his redemption arc. He goes to Columbus Blue Jackets. He's been there two months, hasn't even coached one game and now is resigning. And the reason why, so this is the issue, is that he asked players to see their phones, started scrolling through pictures and said, I want to see what type of people I'm working with based on like what type of photos you have on your phone. And then using Apple AirPlay, put those photos up on a big screen so that other people could see them as well. And some people might say this is not such a big deal. The Columbus Blue Jackets captain, Boone Jenner, and Johnny Goudreau, who's also like a superstar in the NHL, are both like, it's not that big a deal. People are making it a bigger deal than than it needs to be. But imagine you're like 18 years old. Like there's people that play in the NHL that are like 18, 19 years old, never had a job, just played hockey, went straight out of school. And your coach or manager, who's this like longtime, super pedigreed, like aggressive person says, give me your phone. I want to look through your photos or you're not getting any ice time tonight. Right. And I think this is really indicative of the the generation gap, right? Totally. When I first heard this story, I was like, all right, yeah, sure. Okay. Showed, his, showed their phone, showed their phones. Right. But then when I was talking about it more, particularly with people who are younger than myself, you realize like, because I don't really care about my phone. Mm-hmm. I'm never on my phone. Yeah. I never answer you my phone. You don't have any photos on your phone? Oh, that I would... have photos on my phone, but I don't, I don't. But like, would it bother you if, if somebody saw them? Every photo on your phone, would it bother you if someone saw them? No. Okay. Not really. Uh, yeah, I think that's a generational thing then. But also it's the private, it's not really the pictures that are the issue here. It's the privacy of the phone. Yes. And that, that is an extension of the self at this point for, for a certain age group. I think so. Yeah. One of the, uh, like when they initially tried to spin it, they sort of said, oh, it, it's like, you know, hey, bring in a photo of your family so we can all see what each other's or a photo that's really yeah, important that's fine. to I'll you. I'll give you a photo right. of my family, but you right. can't, like if somebody said to me, uh, give me your wallet. I want to go through your wallet and right. see what kind of person you or are. Or your purse. Yeah, I would be like, no, take a step back. You're yeah. not doing that. Yeah. So one of the one of the accusations was that he held one one player's phone and just was like spent minutes like going through all of these photos, just swiping and swiping and swiping. And so people are sort of looking at this and the bigger. I mean, Mike. So Mike Babcock is gone. They don't have a coach. They put an interim coach in, and it's like, is this is a, a bigger story about hockey and its refusal? to move into the, you talk about the generational gap, it's refusal to like let go of the old ways. You know, we had the Hockey Canada scandal. There's been lots of talk of bullying. This story, um, stories like this abound in the NHL 
unfortunately. What's also so interesting about this is that when it first came out a couple of days ago, uh, you had the, the you know, Boone Jenner and, and Johnny Goudreau, who were kind of like the leaders of the mm-hmm. team, saying that they didn't think it was any big deal. I don't know why people are complaining about this. So apparently the NHLPA then thought, you know what, we're just going to ask a few questions. Right. And when they talked to the other members of the team, not the big stars, and the younger members of the team, they had a problem with sure. it. Sure. And yeah. they maybe finally thought, okay, somebody's asking me and I have a voice now. Whereas the bigger stars kind of rolled with it. Yeah. Which and they have been learned to do over to do. time. Yeah, yep, absolutely. And the NHL like is, is trying to do that. But um, it's a shame because I love the game. I love the league. I get that it's like a part of our identity in Canada, but the game needs to catch up with where the rest of us are going. Yeah, this story is so fascinating to me. And you have to wonder, is this now the end of Mike Babcock's Oh, I'm sure career, it right? is. That sure sounds we'll like see. it. This is Mornings with Simi. It is time now for us to check in with Rob Shaw, political correspondent for Czech News. Vaughn will be back next week. He is enjoying his vacation, but Rob's been doing a fantastic job. Good morning, Rob. Good morning, Simi. All right. Now, you've had a lot to talk about, actually, while Vaughn's been gone. Uh, And here we are once again on this Monday. What the heck happened over the weekend with the NDP caucus? Yeah, out of the blue yesterday uh, afternoon, a notice goes out, a media release from Premier David Eby saying that uh, following a human resources complaint into his Parksville Qualicum MLA, Adam Walker, he has chosen uh, to remove Walker from the New Democrat caucus. And he says that they launched an investigation into this HR complaint. They found misconduct on behalf of uh, the MLA. And he has been booted not only from caucus, uh, but also from his parliamentary secretary role. And he was parliamentary secretary for something like the emerging economy or something like that. Everyone has a parliamentary secretary role uh, these days to get a little bit of a pay bump. Uh, So he's out of that job. He's out of the New Democrat caucus. He's out of the party. uh, And uh, the Parksville Qualicum constituents uh, who elected a New Democrat now have an independent MLA instead. So leaving a lot of questions about what's going on here. So do we know, and like, did, did we know about this ahead of time or just come completely out of the blue? No, no, it's a bit out of the blue. You know, you do hear rumblings about uh, MLAs and cabinet ministers right. who have, you know, quote, HR issues. Uh, and it usually means and uh, something along the lines of not treating your staff very well. And uh, MLAs are legendary for that, <laughs> New Democrats had a cabinet minister who treated uh, their staff so poorly that they had to put in guidelines on how the cabinet minister could speak to the staff and that staff could say no to the questions at one point. So, and the liberals had a cabinet minister who treated staff so poorly that, I mean, it's legendary, legendary. Uh, we don't know if that's the case here. Uh, we know, I think, and it's worth mentioning this, that uh, the New Democrats, their constituency offices are staffed by unionized members through the BCGEU. So a lot of in and around the New Democrat world uh, in caucus and in constituencies, they have uh, unions. Uh, It's not the case uh, for BC United. So it's a bit unique in the sense that you could have uh, a whole union process in place behind this HR complaint. You could have, you know, investigations and triggers and uh, settlements, maybe even NDAs, things where you can't talk. And from the GEU's perspective, if that's the case, I mean, these are employees who are vulnerable, especially vulnerable. The power dynamic of politics makes you very vulnerable to people with, um, you know, authority and uh, influence on your career 
and threats that, you know, if you cross the wrong party and the wrong person, you'll never work in this again. So I think, you know, that all of that comes into play on why um, we don't know what this is yet. We will know. People will know eventually. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. But will we, though, though? Because, like, if it's an HR we, thing. We will. Well, I think we will. I think it comes out it, eventually. Uh, it'll, it might take a little while, but it will happen. Because the New Democrats have left this so suitably vague right now that it that your mind immediately thinks, everyone who's listening to this, their mind immediately goes to all sorts of weird, horrible scenarios, right? HR complaint against an MLA. Like, people think about it. And I think Walker... Uh, and, you know, a lot of us were messaging him last night and he's saying um, he's taking some time to think about it, but he seems inclined to talk about it. He said he will probably talk about it today. So he's going to put his side out there because, yeah, when it is deliberately vague, the other side is you start thinking horrible things. And I'm sure he doesn't want that out there. So he'll probably come up with his version of it later today and we'll get a sense of, of maybe what this is more about. But um, it. You know, it, this happens in politics. Unfortunately, it's a it's a it's a business of of people who get elected to office and sometimes don't know how to treat other people, <laughs> and, and and it's it's unfortunate because it's a people business involving human beings, and uh, it's uh, it happens more often than you think. Unfortunately, yeah, that's the sad part about you. Just even even listening to you describe how there were people who were well known for this. Uh, I just, I'm always amazed by how people think it's okay. Like, it's okay to behave like that. Well, let's remember, you know, like a lot of MLAs um, come out of other jobs. Like, for example, Mr. Walker was a, a, a Parks, he was a Qualicum counselor for a couple of years and then a, a tech, he had a tech company before that. So a lot of MLAs come out of other jobs where they may not be in leadership positions or know how to lead people or deal with staff or that type of thing. And they win a riding oftentimes because the riding is a strong riding for a particular party. So you become the NDP candidate in a riding, you win no matter what. Next thing you know, because of uh, who you are or your riding or other factors, you're in cabinet and you're a leader and you have zero leadership experience and training. You don't know, you don't know how to work and lead. Um, and it's not a prerequisite for politics. We don't require you know, the, your, the system exists so that you and I could run for office tomorrow and, and you know, and not be disqualified because we don't have training uh, or, or that type of thing. But but it does mean that um, people don't know how to treat other people. And then that and that becomes a, a hmm. persistent issue no matter the party down here and no matter how um, how folks are treated. So I'm always we'll amazed. It seems kind of basic. Rob Shaw, political correspondent for Czech News. So the NDP have booted an MLA from caucus. And Rob, I have to think that Premier David Eby is going to get asked about this today. Yeah, the Premier has an event this morning, uh, just before nine o'clock, that he wanted to use as a housing springboard straight into the Union of BC Municipalities uh, week, uh, which is in Vancouver which uh, is going to be overtaken, I think, by questions about this uh, this incident with MLA Walker. The housing announcement, you know, the Premier's going to get a lot of um, suggestions and ideas and encouragement and uh, complaints about housing at UBCM this week. And we know that his government's kind of got the carrot and stick approach in deployment now about telling municipalities you speed up housing or we come at you for money and start withholding things. So municipalities are going to want to see that. They're going to want to see what the province's missing middle strategy is, which is uh, some sort of suite of tools to sort of expand that debate that ha just happened in Vancouver. 
uh, about single family lots and what you can do with them and how you change what's allowed and more easily allowed on that land uh, and things like, you know, building additional structures on land and all sorts of things like that. So, you know, once we get over this morning's press conference, I think we'll go back to probably uh, all of the items that are on the agenda for the UBCM and the premier is going to be having to stick handle. And there's a lot, uh, there's a lot of things that'll be happening this week and a lot of weird, um, some good, some weird uh, <laughs> resolutions by municipalities uh, that the province will have to stick handle and uh, a bunch of meetings and um, and things that are interesting, including Dr. Bonnie Henry on decriminalization today, which will be a fascinating yeah. conversation with municipalities who municipalities were the ones who told the NDP government months ago, decrim is producing unintended consequences. And the government told them, why don't you shut your mouths and stop talking to us about that? Because you're fear mongering, you're hurting people, you're ruining things. And it was really quite several mayors, you know, uh, caught the ire of the provincial government on decrim. Uh, and uh, it, it took a long time for the government to change its mind on the, those buffer zones we saw last week. So Dr. Henry coming out and talking about it to a room full of people who don't necessarily feel like the government listened to them in the way they thought they should uh, will be a fascinating dynamic for sure. Yeah, that's interesting because we spoke to Leonard Krogh about that on Friday. Uh, he's the mayor of Nanaimo and, of course, an mm-hmm. old NDP, you know, MLA. And he was saying that that's, that's a huge issue for the mayors this week at the UBCM, but also that the NDP government is sending quite a few cabinet ministers to have sessions with these mayors. Oh, yeah, there's uh, there's provincial cabinet hall town halls that occur. One of them's on emergency preparedness. One of them is on housing. One of them is on stronger services like, um, you know, healthcare and and that type type of things. But then also there's just never ending meetings that happen. It's a bit like speed dating there. There's just these very quick meetings all over the place where a council will get some brief face time with the premier and then another council will come in and talk to the health minister. And they sort of uh, it, it really is a kind of. A massive sort of networking and, and event. And then the resolutions are happening on stage that people vote for too. So you you get a chance for municipalities to bring up local issues very quickly. But um, there, there, decrim was the perfect example of the NDP not listening very well to municipalities. Mm-hmm. So I think they're going to have to do a little bit of not apologizing, but just promising to do a little bit better on that front. Um, and there's a bunch of other resolutions that'll be fascinating to debate what we can talk more about them this week as they as they kind of happen but um you know Nanaimo has a resolution on the floor with that mayor um, wanting the premier to pause his housing plan until the legislation goes through consultation with local governments so they all have different asks of the government and uh, the government is going to have to kind of manage those as they go through this big long week I think one one person once described it UBCM as like um political nerd prom where it's just like <laughs> all the politicians across the, across the the province get together it. in a in a room. You know and, what? And now I feel talking, bad, so. Rob, because like literally when we first started talking about the UBCM, I was like thinking, "Wow, I really love the UBCM." I'm like, mm-hmm, "It's a great mm-hmm. week because so many issues come to the forefront. There's lots of discussion about them. You get to kind of see what's on the minds of communities. Like, I think it's a great event." Oh, it is. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it allows municipalities to get face time with uh, ministers they might not otherwise get. It, it uh, has kind of bakes in accountability every year to have to listen yeah. to uh, local governments that sometimes you can uh, ignore. 
But then, you know, local governments use it uh, to poke the government on all sorts of things. You know, there's uh, Burnaby wants a vacant homes tax and like there's resolutions for more healthcare funding and things like that. I think one municipality wants to bring back photo radar traffic camps, which oh, good luck boy. with that. Yeah. Which, you know, oh, which so. municipality is that? So we can let everybody know who wants Yeah, that, I, right? I think I'm trying to figure out which one uh, did ask for that. I'll look that one back up again. But uh the, oh, I think know, the people the, living in that particular town would like to know who wants who wants photo <laughs> radar. <laughs> yeah, and and but they all bring different things, and most of them require some type of money, but others just require removing red tape. Like there's an interesting one that talks about removing the uh, red tape and putting some more cash into the Fire Smart and Wildfire Prevention ah. programs after the Forest Minister a couple of weeks ago uh, accused municipalities of not taking the government up on the money, saying it's your fault that you're not preparing for fires. We got money there. And the response back is, no, well, you know, you do, but we have to spend the rest of our lives filling out forms, trying to get it from the government. So that's a resolution on the, on the table as well. So it's, it's interesting hmm. the, the different ways that they, that the, the two sides will be talking about issues this week. It certainly will be. That'll give us a lot of talk to talk about too. Rob, thank you. Okay, take care. That's Rob Shaw, political correspondent for Czech News, talking about the Union of BC Municipalities Convention. I know you're thinking convention, really? No, no. You're going to get so much news coming out of this thing, so much political news coming out of that this week. Uh, Rob was just outlining why, and of course, we will have it all for you. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. This is Mornings with Simi. We've heard a lot of talk lately about international students and trying to find housing and how incredibly challenging it is. I mean, universities keep bringing in international students, but they're not making sure those students are looked after and have a place to live. So who should step in and do something? Is this a a government obligation? Should the federal government help address this student housing crisis? And if so, how? Well, Alexander Ray is a doctoral candidate in the Department of Geography at Western University and joins us now to talk more about this. Alexander, thank you for being here. Good morning. I understand you're also a part of the Town and Gown Association. What is that all about? Yeah, so I'm uh, the president of the Town and Gown Association of Ontario, which is a group of institutions and municipalities, as well as landlords, student groups, uh, neighborhood associations that are interested in fostering positive and welcoming town and gown communities. What does that mean? Well, what that means is essentially bringing together institutions as, you know, responsible actors within their host communities and Ah. ensuring students feel a welcoming place to live. This seems like it would be incredibly timely right now, Alexander, given what we're hearing about what's happening to international students. Yes, it is. And I think that's why the research that we've been doing, along with my colleague, Dr. Nick Revington at uh, INRS in Montreal, uh, is so timely for uh, this issue that we're seeing right now in Canada. And while our research is very Ontario specific, I think, you know, there's lessons for Canada and other jurisdictions uh, in North America. Okay, so what is going on then with international students? It sounds like this is right across the country. 
Yes, absolutely. Um, Canada has become reliant on international students as a pathway for immigration. And it's also really uh, an issue related to post-secondary funding uh, right across the board, but particularly in Ontario. Uh, we've seen provincial governments slash uh, transfers to post-secondary institutions. So the only way that they can, uh, one, maintain their current budgets and two, invest in new research infrastructure, teaching, and uh, facilities is through more and more international students. And so where do they stay when they get here? What kind of crunch? I mean, bad enough for, you know, people who are already here, but when international students arrive, where are they supposed to live? Well, that's a huge concern. I was actually on a call this week with a colleague in the UK who was dealing with 20 students who had just landed from mainland China and uh, didn't have a place to live because they realized they had been scammed uh, through a a WhatsApp scam. And we're also seeing that here in Canada. We've heard from particularly uh, students from India and uh, mainland China, that they're also facing similar issues where uh, they pay a large deposit a year in advance in most cases uh, through a, a WhatsApp chat that often actually is mimicking a, a well-known housing provider in the city that they're looking to live in. And then they get there and the leasing agent has no idea what they're talking about. They don't have the records and there's no units available. And all of a sudden we have international students that are scrambling to find housing or living in their vehicles or living in parks or sleeping uh, in student centers. This sounds awful. What, like, and so then what happens when they get here? So really what happens when they get here is they realize they've been promised a, a false, false bill of goods. And, you know, it, your introduction here on who is responsible for this issue, uh, I think it's a, a mix of everyone. And the federal government, I think, needs to take a little bit of responsibility for pretty much allowing unlimited Uh, international student study permits. Two, the province needs to take some responsibility in that they've created this need for institutions to constantly expand their programs to accommodate more and more international students in order to support their bottom line and be sustainable operations. Uh, And three, as we identify in our research, municipalities for a long time, uh, we're talking decades, have blocked particularly student housing. It's, It's much more of a recent issue of how much they've blocked regular housing, but student housing in particular for many decades has been blocked in local communities and students are sort of viewed as people that uh, shouldn't be living in their local communities, which I, I fundamentally disagree with. I think it's great that students live in their host communities and get that life experience and uh, really in a transformative and early stage of their lives, uh, come together and understand how um, how life actually works and, and what it is to actually take care of a house and uh, live together with people. Isn't there also, Alexander, a lot of responsibility here with these post-secondary institutions? I mean, they're bringing in the students. They know who's arriving. Why aren't they you know, obligated to provide more help and housing? Certainly, that is a great point, and I think one of the policy initiatives that should be discussed. But what I will say in talking to my institutional partners, unless there is new money or reallocated money on the table to support these institutions, it is almost next to impossible for them to fit that within their capital obligations and their maintenance obligations. And so really what we need to see from the province is the province to step up and say, we are going to provide funding to get on-campus housing built, which I think um, has been happening in some cases, but definitely not enough. 
And I think also what we need to really talk about is uh, the federal government perhaps introducing a one or two year moratorium on international study permits being issued in particularly high high uh, or low availability cities where we know that there's many students, both international and domestic, that are struggling to find housing. Okay, that would be interesting, a moratorium on international students. Uh, But I think what the other part of this discussion here, too, is the fact that we've heard for years that aren't post-secondary institutions bringing in international students as a way to subsidize domestic students? Well, it's, it's subsidizing domestic students in the fact that the province has capped tuition rates right. and has not kept the funding formula in pace with inflation. So, yes, if you want to say international students are subsidizing domestic students, certainly. But I would say that it's not a choice that the institutions have made. It is a fiscal reality that they've been forced into by other government decisions. Right. So whether it's money from the federal government to provide housing or more money for the institutions uh, for to, like you know for students, it's all going to work out to be the same thing, right? There needs to be more money. Exactly. We are incredibly lucky in Canada that somehow we have managed to create a fantastic post-secondary system that is one of the world leaders in research, but really we handicap it every time we cut funding and we starve out the sector and force it to be reliant on these really finicky models of international students. I'll remind you, one of the things that contributed to Laurentian's uh, Chapter 11 bankruptcy and restructuring was that Saudi Arabia pulled funding for all their students in a diplomatic spat with Canada. I would say that, you know, the Prime Minister's recent trip to India there could be a real crisis in many institutions if there was another diplomatic spat between Canada and India that resulted in them telling their nationals that, no, you're not allowed to go to Canada or Canada withdrawing their eligibility for study visas. And that would put a lot of institutions in a really tight spot. It just sounds like something we are not preparing adequately for. Um, Alexander, thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. Have a great rest of the day. You too. That's Alexander Ray, a doctoral candidate in the Department of Geography at Western University, talking about our obligation to international students. Institutions are bringing them in. Where are they supposed to live? Should the federal government step in and do something? If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. What should we do? Should there be a moratorium on bringing in more students? Should we be obligated to make sure they have a place to stay? This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about equal pay for equal work. Yeah, we still have to talk about it at this point of 2023. In fact, Scott Chance is going to talk about it this morning. Hi, Scott. Hi, how are you? I'm good, thank you. This, Although this topic is a little bit frustrating. Yes, absolutely. And uh, that is one of my biggest takeaways from this whole conversation is the fact that we even still need to have it, right? Uh, I thought that it was 2023 and not 1975, but I guess someone invented time travel because here we are. Uh, it's inter- time travel when I get my paycheck. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, International Equal Pay Day. This is a movement supported uh, in many countries. It's pushed forward by the United Nations as part of like a human rights thing. Like we should all be treated equally in, uh, you know, the world as a whole. And uh, yeah, so I got in touch with Michelle Dunhill. She is uh, a regional director at Robert Half in Toronto. They're a huge human rights organization. And yeah, I basically expressed this sentiment to her. Like I'm still like surprised. And yeah, of course frustrated, yes, that this is something that we even have to talk about in 2023. 
Well, it's certainly something that needs to be top of mind, both for employers and for employees. And we have new data from Robert Half, which really kind of highlights some current salary trends affecting working women in Canada. So our key data uh, and findings, Scott, were firstly that women are are less likely to ask for a raise. So while 56% of women say they plan to ask for a raise by the end of 2023, this is actually lower than 64% of men who will be requesting raises. So fewer women are negotiating salaries. So 35% of women surveyed reported having never negotiated their salaries compared to 28% of women women. And then women are also worried about inflation. So eight and 10 women are concerned about inflation outpacing their salary growth this year, a somewhat higher percentage than the 74% of men who reported feeling the same. So our survey results are certainly something that, uh, you know, we want to be mindful of, like I said, Scott, with employers and with employees. So why do you think that is, that women are less likely to ask for a raise? So one of the key things that women want to keep in mind is really to know their worth. So negotiation is key to the hiring process and overall salary growth. So job seekers should be prepared to negotiate salary with prospective employers, especially in the current competitive hiring market. So we're not seeing that as much as men. And that includes knowing your worth. So what is the market rate for your position in your area? Are you a remote employee where the cost of living needs to be added into consideration? And what are the other companies offering their employees in your city or province in terms of salary benefits and perks? Uh, really important as well, and what we're coaching um, our candidates with is really preparing a business case. So you want to come prepared so women are most uh, like, less likely to be doing that. And that's something that we're highlighting to keep top of mind. So preparing talking points to justify your request for a higher salary at your company. What contributions have you made in the past year? Have you saved the company money, improved processes, taken on additional responsibilities? And then creating a list of your recent successes and positive feedback you've received as evidence of your excellent work. So you want to be prepared. This all sounds like really, really great advice. Now, I know because I've I've heard people say this, that there kind of exists this fear or or worry, it maybe is the right word, that if I ask for a raise, now I am sort of more, there's like a spotlight on me and I'm more, it's like noticeable that I should be performing higher or maybe be, be a bit more scrutinized and it's worried that like when companies uh, need to, you know, um, pare down their list of employees or make some changes that maybe that's going to be me on the chopping block because I'm making more than my colleagues. What would you say to that? Is that a reality or is that something that we should be concerned about? Is that a bit of a trade-off? What would you say to that? Well, I think that there's, you know, pieces and takeaways for employers. So like I've just highlighted, so 
some tips for women when it comes to salary negotiation. There's takeaways for employers. So how can companies prevent pay compression, uh, benchmark salaries using resources like the Robert Half Salary Guide, uh, really conduct regular pay audits and bring up the base salary of underpaid employees? When raises aren't an option, consider consider providing non-monetary perks and offer compensation that aligns with current market trends. So female professionals are researching what they deserve when it comes to compensation and are willing to change jobs if it's not up to par. So employers need to pay competitively and be willing to negotiate to secure highly sought after talent. They also need to reevaluate and adjust salaries regularly to ensure they remain competitive. So female workers are also now looking beyond salary when making career decisions. So it's on both ends here for sure. Perks and benefits, growth opportunities, organizational culture, and flexibility play a role in supporting them too. So that's some really key takeaways for employers. Now, what would you say to uh, any men who are listening who think to themselves, I want to support my female colleagues uh, and, and see them make the same sort of salary that I make, but, you know, it's not my decision. I'm just an employee. I'm at the same kind of level. How can we support um, our colleagues to make sure that, you know, equal pay is a thing that's happening? Well, I think guidance from all fronts is key. I think another key tip for women to keep top of mind um, that certainly can help with anyone in an organization is with regards to promotion requests. Uh, to be confident, uh, to communicate confidently. When you meet with your manager, demonstrate confidence and poise through the discussion. Identify opportunities in your organization if that's something you want and go after them. Is there a need in the company where you can help expand the business? So I think women and men together uh, can support one another on this front. That's Michelle Dunhill. She's a regional director at Robert Half in Toronto talking about International Equal Pay Day. Uh, Reminder, ask for a raise. You deserve it. I'll do that today. Thank you for that, Scott. (laughs) We'll see how that goes. This is Mornings with Simi. It is not easy to find childcare out there, is it? And for many parents, the challenge is even being worsened by non-refundable registration fees. So is it time to get rid of them? Like, how would we do that? We're going to talk about that this morning with Sharon Gregson. Sharon is the spokesperson for the Coalition of Childcare Advocates of BC. Good morning, Sharon. Good morning, Simi. I feel like, Sharon, we've come a long way, haven't we? Like, 10 yeah, years ago, yeah, I yeah. would be interviewing you just about getting government to pay for childcare, and we've made a lot of progress, but it feels like still some challenges out there. A lot of progress since 2018, it's true, and still a long way to go. And certainly the issue today of waiting list fees, non-refundable fees, when you're not guaranteed a space, that's one of the issues that government could be addressing. Okay, and so what is this? What's happening? So when you are ready to go back to work after parental leave and you start looking for childcare and you discover that there are long waiting lists and you're asked to pay sometimes hundreds of dollars to put your child's name on a waiting list when you're not even guaranteed that you're going to have a space. So you can end up spending a small fortune when you try to register on multiple waiting lists. And so that's what you have to do? How, like, how big are these fees? Well, um, it's not unusual to hear of 100 or $200 non-refundable. 
and certainly higher fees in the for-profit sector than in the public or non-profit sector. And do people have to shell out multiple times for this? Well, each organization maintains its own waiting list. And so for each organization, you could be asked to pay money to go onto their waiting list. So it becomes a revenue stream for those organizations, for those corporations. And what is the rationale for having these fees? Because there is a certain amount of administration work that can be required in maintaining a waiting list, making sure that it's up to date, that the person who is eligible is at the top of the list. But unfortunately, when you've got very few spaces and hundreds of people waiting for childcare, there isn't a lot of maintenance or administration to do because it's just such a long list. So how do we balance that then with that administration work that you talked about with also making it affordable for parents? Well, we need to have a a far more accessible, transparent system for families. So when you think about it, our K-12 system, when your child is turning five, you don't go around to every elementary school and pay a, a waiting list fee, hoping that you'll get a spot in kindergarten. So we need to start thinking about childcare, early childhood education, much more the same way we think about access to our K-12 system. So that means school districts potentially more involved in maintaining lists of who's going to need childcare at what time. We need to think about this being part of the operating expense of childcare programs and not an additional revenue stream, which means we need to have decent operating funding so that childcare providers don't need to do this or can't do it if they're trying to make extra profit. Right. Like we don't, we sh- they shouldn't be building that into their business plan. That's correct. Now, if people want to, if childcare providers want to operate outside of a, a publicly managed system, then they could, they could do that. But if they want to be providing service that's paid for with taxpayer dollars, then they shouldn't be having an additional revenue stream um, while they're doing that. So are you talking about having a more coordinated uh, system, something like, you know, a, a website where you can register and it would be, for say, for your community, your city, your neighborhood? Exactly. So centralized through a, the, an elementary school catchment area, perhaps, uh, and managed by the school district, perhaps, who already is prepared and, and predicts how many children are going to need to go to kindergarten so they would be able to do that a little bit earlier and more precisely. Of course, we can ask school districts to keep on doing more without a mandate and the funding to do that. But they do have the infrastructure to start managing a system like this. And let's remember, childcare is now firmly embedded in the Ministry of Education. It's even in their name, Education and Child Care. And what are you hearing from providers about them being able to get their money? I know this was an issue earlier in the year about uh, the government being slow to get that money out. Is that getting better? Well, the it, the practice of charging waiting list fees that are non-refundable and you don't get a, a guaranteed space, this is not a new issue. Um, it's, it raises its head every, every now and again as parents realize, wow, somebody's asking me $200. It's non-refundable. Um, 10 a day programs across the province are not allowed to charge waiting list fees. So it's already happening that that move is starting to, to take place where waiting list fees are not permitted. Um, so it's difficult for parents to navigate this system for operators, um, 
needs to be part of your the your enrollment system of how you manage applicants for your program and that it doesn't make sense for it to be done organization by organization it needs to be more coordinated okay do you see progress in making this happen like are there incremental moves forward on this Yes, absolutely. So the uh, 10 a day sites across the province, and there are now nearly 15,000 um, 10 a day pr- um, spaces across the province, those programs are not permitted to charge parents waiting list fees because they are publicly funded. And so that's, that's a much more fair way to, to make sure that it's equitable. Because, of course, if you're a wealthy family, you're much more able to pay all those waiting list fees than if you're not a wealthy family. So there's, there needs to be more equity in the system. Right. Okay. Still so much more work to do, though, Sharon, isn't it? There is a lot more work. There's work to make sure um, early childhood educators are fairly paid and we're suggesting a wage grid. There's work to do to make sure that government actually expands the number of spaces more quickly. And we have some capital suggestions for that. And, of course, they have to make sure operators are well-funded to provide quality care. All right. Well, lots to talk to you about then in the future. Sharon, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Simi. Take good care. Bye-bye. You too. That's Sharon Gregson, spokesperson for the Coalition of Childcare Advocates of BC. Now, I do get emails from people on this, parents who are looking for childcare, and they say, you know, these non-refundable fees are, are really challenging for them. I, I guess the temptation is you got to put yourself on every wait list, right? You don't know what possibility might open. And so then daycare providers are putting these fees in place because they have to manage these wait lists. But what is the balance there between them? If you've got a, a story about searching for childcare, would love to hear it, especially at this time of year, right? Or what is going on out there? What is it like to try to find good childcare for your child and your family? Let me know, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. What a game. Did you see it? It was crazy. The BC Lions playing Ottawa over the weekend. You thought they were going to lose this game, but somehow they did not. 41-37 comeback win. Coach Rick Campbell is with us now. Coach, how you feeling? Well, I'm going to start off with Any Given Sunday. That's my movie. I know I failed on my, I failed on my homework assignment the last couple of weeks. So Any Given Sunday is my movie, and it has big CFL ties to it. So there are a lot of CFL players that were in it. So that's, that's my movie. Oh, that, great choice, by the way. Great choice. Great movie. And you know what? It's almost like you had the guys watch some kind of inspirational football movie to have that comeback. You guys could have been one in that last game. Yeah, it was pretty exciting. So, um you know, it looked like we were down and out, but the CFL, the reason people like it a lot, one of the reasons is they stop the clock in the last three minutes, and that's so that a lot of things can happen, and that's exactly what did happen. So credit to our players for not giving up and finding a way to get it done. That was the biggest fourth quarter comeback in team history. Was there a turning point? Was there something that happened that ignited the team? Yeah, well, the biggest thing where they were trying a long field goal and they missed it and we ran it back for a touchdown. So when you think about it that way, it's really a 10-point play because they miss out on their three points on the field goal. And then, you know, we get a touchdown going the other way. So that's really the biggest thing that could have happened, and it did, and it uh, definitely, you know, allowed us an opportunity to win the game. And let's talk about Vernon Adams here. Because the composure, the, just the steady eddiness of him, that was really quite something. 
Yeah, I really appreciate that. Even when we're down, he really he plays the game to win. There's some quarterbacks when you're down, they don't want to throw interceptions or they want to be real conservative because they don't want to hurt their stats or have people talk bad about him. But he's a guy that doesn't play for the stats. He plays to win. So he keeps on battling and keeps trying and uh, um, you know, got it done at the end of the day. Yeah. What does that mean for the team? Like what kind of a, a leader is he in the room or even on the field for them? Well, the best leaders are people that do it through their actions, not through their words. So and he, he, he does. He's a guy that believes it. And I know that he believed we always had a chance to fight all the way till the end. And, and his actions prove that. So that's, that's really what I like about him is his consistency and his uh, leadership through his actions. Yeah, boy, talk about a good feeling after that game. Now, now we were, that was supposed to clinch a playoff spot, right? But that isn't necessarily I, the case. Yeah. Yeah, there's a math. You'd have to go to MIT to figure out this math (laughs) thing. There's one scenario where if we get Calgary and Saskatchewan and us all finish nine and nine, that we could technically not make it, but it would require a lot of things to happen. So definitely we win one more game. We're absolutely in. And, um, you know, that's obviously what we'll be shooting for. Yeah, but that's a good motivation for the team. So you've got a Friday night game coming up in Edmonton. Like, let's talk about the Elks here for a second. Yeah, so they they're four and one in their last five games. So they don't their oh, record is yeah. I believe four and ten, but they they've won four out of their last five games. So they've obviously gotten better. It'll be the third time we're playing them this this year, and uh, we beat them twice. But we want to try to get it done one more time. Are you wary of teams like that? Where you the first two games where you won, they were kind of lopsided, and they might be looking a little re-energized or feeling a bit re-energized. Yeah, they're definitely re-energized, not because of us, but just because of they've won four out of the last five. So we don't have to do a sell job on our players to know that we have to go there and play our best. And um, I know our guys will be up for it, and we'll try to get it done Friday. Love it. Look forward to it. And you know what I'm going to do this week? I'm going to rewatch any given Sunday because you said that. So oh, oh, thank all you. right. Excellent. <laughs> have a good week. We'll talk to you Monday. Okay. See ya. This is Mornings with Simi. It's been a little over a week now since that horrible situation unfolded in Chinatown where three people were stabbed uh, during a festival that was supposed to help build up Chinatown. Ever since that happened, though, there have been so many discussions about what led to that. There is someone who has been accused of this who's been charged with this uh, stabbing situation that unfolded there. But the circumstances around all of it still leave us with so many questions. For instance, the person who has been charged here was reportedly uh, from the local mental health facility, so from Colony Farms, out on a day pass when this alleged attack took place. What rights does the public have to know about situations like that? That's been part of the questions that we have been asking all week. So if someone is going to be let out into the community, does the community have a right to know about that person's history? Do they have a right to know about what could be happening right there in their neighborhood? So we're going to talk about that this morning with the help of Ashish Puri, who's an associate and criminal defense lawyer at Acumen Law Corporation. Ashish, thank you for joining us. Hey, Simi, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Now, this is all part of the BC Review Board. Can you explain to us how does that work? What is the BC Review Board? So I'd like to start by saying BC Review Board is an independent, competent body with the paramount consideration of public and trust at the center of it. They have three people who are making this decision or at the chair. There's basically a person who's been a judge or has uh, been qualified to become a judge, or has been practicing for 10 plus years, 
a person who is um, representing a psychiatry or the forensic body, and a person uh, from the public, which is basically somebody with relevant experience from the past. So it could be a retired police chief or, again, somebody uh, with a psychiatric background. Okay, but then when you say it's totally independent, what are, what are they supposed to do? What are their parameters? So they're supposed to keep into account the public interest and make decisions regarding that. So if somebody is uh, not criminally responsible or unfit to stand a trial, uh, they are recommended to the BC Review Board to make that decision if they can be let out into the public or not. And that is when they have to consider, again, the public interest. Okay, so but does the public interest also include letting the public know that this is a possibility? That is a possibility, yes. And uh, the public does have a right to know. The public also has a right to attend these hearings and make recommendations. Okay, how often does that happen, though? It feels like a lot of this happens um, in secret issues. So you're saying that if the public wants to know, they can go and find out. Yes, they absolutely can. And the BC Review Board uh, do have an annual report uh, where they let out all the reasons for the decisions that they have made making. And the public can uh, definitely attend these hearings. It's all up on the Internet, how the public can contact the BC Review Board. All they have to do is call them. There are obviously some restrictions on which hearings the public can attend or which hearings they cannot. Uh, there are some uh, that are subject to publication ban. And th- there are some other considerations to where the accused is dangerous and the public are recommended not to attend those hearings. But otherwise, the public can definitely attend and give their recommendations. As I said, one of the members of the BC Review Board who's making this decision is representing the public interest there. Okay, so then why does it feel like the board hasn't been open to talking about what happened in this case? At this point, I believe, I mean, I cannot speak for the board, obviously, uh, but it seems like because of what's going on and the seriousness of this situation, which is obviously very unfortunate, uh, the board is keeping uh, shush about it, but they should be releasing their report soon. Okay, but still, that doesn't seem like it's enough for the public right now, though, does it, Ashish? Like, shouldn't there be an obligation to tell the public to talk about this more openly? Absolutely. And as I said, because of what's going on right now and um, because of this unfortunate event and somebody who's been appointed to look into the decision making and how that accused was let out on a day pass, um, I believe the BC report should be giving a statement soon. And they should. Do you think that part of the problem here, Ashish, is that, you know, we just don't pay the public? Normally, this work is done kind of not in secret, but you know, kind of away from the public's eye because the public doesn't really pay attention. Well, um, you could say that, or we could also, again, say that the BC Review Board has the public interest at their consideration. So every decision that they make with the benefit of the forensic report is to benefit the public. But in this case, that is unfortunate. Uh, but we also should not forget, the BC Review Board did say that the person who's released is a significant threat and should not be released without supervision. Okay, so there, you point out a good point, is that if the system was working as it should have, then this person yeah. shouldn't have been released without public supervision. Well, that was that is uh, something that should have happened, but unfortunately it did not, and the person was released, and uh, that is being looked into. So we await what that report says. Can you, what are some of the deficiencies? Like, can you explain to us, like, problems that you see in that system? Well, um, there is always going to be problems, Simi, um, in every system, and every system could be revised from time to time. Um, the review board cannot be certain about what could happen in the future. And that's
that is why the forensics reports come into force, where they have the benefit of looking into that report. Um, so, yeah, some of the problems like this situation is when the case is released without supervision, and uh, this could occur. It's not likely that it happens a lot often, uh, but it did in the situation, and it is unfortunate. So we uh, read the report and see what happens. Right. So do you think that there's some uh, misunderstanding here as well, is that the public thinks that they're not entitled to this information, but the information is there if they want to go take it? The information is available. Like I said, the BC Review Board does post an annual report, and the public can look into it and see the past decisions too. Okay, but that's, isn't it too terms. late at that point? She's like, it's a little too late when the annual report comes out because we want to know about these things as they happen. Uh, absolutely, and that is why the BC Review Board, when they release a person into, um, as they said, that this person was a significant threat, but that power goes out of the BC Review Board's hands and goes into the court's hand when they're released. So, again, uh, it has to see what's the correlation between the BC Review Board's uh, deemed significant threat, their recommendation, and how they were released. Um, so something went wrong, obviously, between that. It's unclear what went wrong at this stage, uh, but that question should be answered very soon. So, Ashish, what would you say to a member of the public who is concerned about all of this after the past week? What I would say is, what is your opinion? That is the best thing that somebody can do. It is the province's responsibility. It is the provincial government's responsibility. This is not a federal matter. It has happened within BC. It's happened in, in one of the busiest places in BC. So what I would recommend is the public should voice their opinion. They should attend these hearings and they should give their recommendation because, again, one of those members is representing the public. Ashish, thank you so much for your time this morning. No problem, Simi. Have a great day. Bye. You too. That's Ashish Puri, who's an associate and criminal defense lawyer at Acumen Law Corporation, talking about the BC Review Board process, of which there has been lots of questions because of what happened and unfolded over the past week. It started with the stabbing in Chinatown of three people uh, during that festival a little more than a week ago. It was a Sunday night a week ago. And now we find out that the person who has been accused of this, who's been charged in this, was out on a day pass from a forensic psychiatric facility, leading to questions about, well, what rights does the public have in these situations to know about someone's history? And, you know, if something does potentially or allegedly go wrong, as it could have in this case, what are what's the accountability in the system then for the person who did say, yes, this person can go out on this day pass? Those are the questions that people still have on that. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Wouldn't it be great if we had a passenger rail line between Chilliwack and Surrey? Something regular, something reliable that commuters could really count on. Well, we did back in the day have this, but it stopped running in 1950. I love it. I think it's a great idea. And it's actually coming up for discussion at the Union of BC Municipalities convention this week. Now, our next guest, Rick Green, is happy about that. He is the former mayor of the township of Langley and president of the South Fraser Community Rail Society. Good morning and thank you for joining us. Good morning, Simi. Good to be here. Why are you so passionate about this? Uh, well, this is something that um, I initiated back in 2009. I was very fortunate to uh, uncover a master agreement uh, that uh, was due to expire in about six months at the time uh, to allow passenger rail. Uh, the provincial government of the day in 1988, uh, when they ceased operation of their BC Hydro Freight Division, uh, they sold everything off and they wanted to sell the whole thing, but the cabinet of the day said, no, we're going to protect the corridor, keep it for public use, 
and protect passenger rights for future use, uh, uh, future use in rail. So those rights are there if we want to use them. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, it's, it, it just makes so much common sense. I mean, no matter how you, how you cut it, we've been on this, um, as I say, since 2009. But an interesting thing, between 2009, it was one thing to renew it, which we got all the municipalities south of the river to endorse it. We got it renewed. Um, unfortunately, between then and 2017, uh, nobody wanted to suggest that we could use diesel power up the valley. Just because of the Fraser Valley Airshed, it's a polluted airshed. Um, uh, quite dangerous. There's been a number of studies that have been done on it. So it was the advent of hydrogen rail in 2017 that was introduced in Germany. Uh, it's now in full operation. It's in about five different countries. It's expanding throughout the world. It's going into California. Um, and this is uh, the only emissions from that is water vapor. Uh, it's state of the art, um, state of the art hydrogen rail. Uh, it would just be a, a, just a boon to the economy. Uh, to the environment, to access to jobs, um, I could go on. Now, I was going to say, you really are passionate about this. But let's talk about the difference this could make in just terms of getting people off the road, even opening up options for, for housing, right, in perhaps areas that people hadn't thought of before. You no, know, exactly. And, and one of the things that, uh, let's start with the, 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 the first need, is interregional transit south of the river, which we don't have. There's 1.2 million residents south of the river, we do not have interregional uh, transit. So go to uh, the, our choices. Our choices are buses on Highway 1. Well, that's ridiculous because the congestion on Highway 1 just wouldn't handle it. We're talking about high, widening Highway 1. Uh, the reality is widening to Sumas Way, uh, and that's just been recent, recent announcement from the province, won't be completed for another 10-plus years. Um, I can tell you it's totally congested now. When it is finished, it'll be three times congestion will be three times worse than it is today. So, what are your other options? The only option is passenger rail, and you know it's it's happening throughout the country, throughout the world. Why can't we do it here? Well, We've got our own corridor. You're right, though. Why can't we do it here? So then, Rick, from your perspective, from what you've seen, what are the holdups? Why haven't we done this? To be honest with you, it just hasn't been seriously thought of, and we've got uh, TransLink trying to protect their turf. Uh, mainly, um, when I hear that TransLink's, one of TransLink's priorities, with the greatest of respect to Simon Fraser University, when I hear that one of TransLink's priorities is a gondola to SFU, I rest my case. Um, they are, and, and what most people don't seem to realize, that TransLink are only responsible by provincial legislation for Metro Vancouver. Right. They are not concerned one iota anything east of 264th Street in the township of Langley. And then I guess, as mayor, I guess with that, I wonder then, isn't it incumbent upon the Fraser Valley Regional District to really put this on the table and say, we need to do this? Well, in fairness, I think it's, it's going to be a provincial initiative. Uh, it was a provincial initiative to stop passenger rail in 1950. It's going to be a provincial decision to start it up. No different than the West Coast Express, which was started up in, what, 1995, I think. Um, the same type of thing applies. Now, what we're talking about here is a seven-day-a-week operation, 16 hours a day. Um, it would vary in terms of service times, half hour in rush hour, hour uh, non-rush hour, uh, 16 communities that would serve. You'll hear Transit every once in a while come out with, yeah, well, it doesn't serve population centers. The exact opposite is true. It actually shows why they don't understand 
Um, uh, they have never allowed us to even present uh, the uh, uh, the format that we're proposing for the South Fraser Community Rail. Uh, I provided you with a copy of our community business case that we've done. It's an mm-hmm. 86-page document, and it cover, covers every conceivable element pertaining to this, uh, this suggestion, this proposal. You have done a lot of work on this. Rick, how long would it take then? Uh, giving, like, for a commuter or somebody who might be interested in this, Rick, give us an idea of, of from a consumer perspective, what would it be like to use this? If you were to go from, we estimate, and, and again, uh, Simi, this is, these are estimates, obviously, uh, but we're talking about 14 rail transit hubs uh, throughout the valley. From Chilliwack through to the Pontella Bridge Skytrain Station, we're talking about roughly 90 minutes. Um, some people will say, well, the tracks aren't uh, up to standard. Nothing could be further from the truth. They have used those tracks to return co- uh, empty coal trains down into, into the States through Huntington, which goes on, which 90% of that is on the interurban corridor. So, and we're talking heavy rail there. So, these tracks are up to standard. They're they're on. They they have to be built to national standards for sure. Um, Cost wise, these this is pennies on the dollar compared to SkyTrain. Um, if you if you talk about SkyTrain, and let's not forget the SkyTrain to Langley City, they talk about it costing 3.9 billion dollars. We estimate it's going to cost nothing less than $5.5 billion because of the construction problems over the Serpentine Flats and what have you. Um, and so we're talking about over $300 million a kilometer. This could be, this could be uh, reactivated at a cost of about $12.5 million a kilometer, and that would pay for rolling stock, road gates, uh, passenger platforms. We're talking yeah. about European-style platforms, not the... Uh, traditional SkyTrain stations that were that uh, are in place now. Rick, I think though, you know, I think the general public would be like, yeah, sure, let's do this. I mean, Chilliwack, to, you're talking Chilliwack to downtown Vancouver in approximately two hours, right? Ninety minutes to New Westminster, yeah, half an yeah. hour, thirty five minutes beyond that to get on SkyTrain and go to downtown Vancouver. That's amazing. If you don't have to get in your car and do that, my question to you is then. How do you make this happen? How, well, is that the UBCM been, this week? What's next? Well, we've been we've been at it uh, quite heavy. Now, I hope the resolution gets to the floor at UBCM. Uh, God knows, I've been I've been at UBCM a number of years, and they have a lot of resolutions to deal with. So, whether they get to it or not, we're hoping we get the endorsement of everybody, uh, and that they uh, that they see the need for this. We've been working with the provincial government. Um, oh, I guess the last seven years. Uh, numerous meetings, more than I care to think about. Um, so it's really a matter of the uh, provincial government, ma- government making the decision. Uh, it's an absolute boon environmentally, economically. Um, you know, as you say, like, why isn't it happening? That's what most people say. How would you envision this being paid for? Like, you'd obviously pay to get on this, but what do you think is a, the price point that people would pay to do this? Well, I, I would think that it would probably be similar to, uh, to West Coast Express, um, but that would be something that would have to be decided. I mean, you know, all transit is subsidized. Let's not kid ourselves. Um, that, that's for sure. It depends on what the capital cost is to implement a transit system. So, um, you know, the cost would be, I think, would be uh, when you take a look at gas costs today and everything else and cost of time sitting in traffic. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, it is just a it's, a it's a remarkable opportunity. It's a priceless opportunity, frankly. And we are we are hoping upon hope that we have UPCM support. 
and that we and we will continue our campaign uh, with the province, um, talking to cabinet ministers, talking to the premier. Um, so we're looking forward to it. Well, thanks so much for your time on that this morning. No problem. Anytime. I, I look forward to hearing more about this, as in, let's make this happen. That is Rick Green, former mayor of the township of Langley and president of the South Fraser Community Rail Society. I love the idea of some kind of rail link, whether you're talking electric train or whatever, uh, between Chilliwack and Surrey. I think it is needed. I hope to see the UBCM discuss that this week and that the provincial government pays attention to this. Yeah, like, sure, widen Highway 1, but maybe we should be throwing even more options at that corridor. What do you think?